Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 455 on Tuesday, the 15th of February, 2020. Hello, I'm Alan. Hello, I'm Andrew. And this week, as one puppet is replaced by another on the show, we'll be seeing why Manchester is pausing for breath. We're also wondering how soon before people stop driving. And we are putting in the picture with an infotainment system. But first, we go to a spot of follow-up, and this is from Greater Manchester. And the news that the Greater Manchester Mayor, Andy Burnham, has announced with agreement from the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, that the clean air zone that was to be brought in on the 30th of May in Greater Manchester will be postponed. Mm -hmm. Now they have till 2026 to get their clean air standards to what was required in 2024. But what has happened is Annie Burnham has argued and seemingly won this argument saying, due to the pandemic and chip shortages, the companies such as private hire companies and uh, anything that had like like commercials and stuff like that could not get hold of the cleaner air vehicles that they needed to Mm. avoid the fee that they were going to have to pay to go in the boundary of the Greater Manchester Clean Air Zone. Nothing to do, by the way, just to be clear, apparently this is nothing to do with the fact that there is an election coming up. Where in Greater Manchester, or just generally? Yes, for the mayor. I do love, by the way, yes, I'm sure it's nothing to do with it. He is absolutely not a political player in any way, shape or form. And I do love the picture of him at the top of this Yes Auto story, if you do follow the the link in the show notes. (laughs) He looks like he's never going to give us up or let us down. Yes, his argument is strong, to be fair to him. It is, in all fair. It, it I'm taking is. my tongue out my all cheek fairness. now and being trying to be balanced and nice here uh, and not just have a pop <laughs> because it's a politician. You could tell he's been away for two weeks, <laughs> can't you? Yes. It'll go soon, don't worry. Uh, But the vehicles are difficult to get hold of. We all know that. We all see each week that there are new stories of chip shortages and all the rest of it. So I'm glad that they have decided not to just insert this tax regardless yes yes me too me too i think it's probably probably a very actually a very good decision despite any political environment around it yeah there may or may not be Mm -hmm. oh everybody's gonna complain because i whispered at the end of that sentence i'm very sorry people what's next oh new news and unfortunately it seems like a very old story but it is it is still new news petrol prices in the uk just fuel prices in general be it petrol or diesel have reached uh, what is quoted here as an eye-watering record high, and it really is pretty stingy out there. Average petrol prices passed £1.48.02 pence per litre on Sunday. Diesel reached £1.51.57 pence per litre. We're almost going to have to give up the decimals on the pence per litres at the rate we're going at, to be perfectly honest. Yes, that's pretty high. Those are new all-time highs, as Rita Coolidge didn't sing. Yeah, what I don't get with this is I'm sure since the start of this podcast, we have covered petrol prices when the crude oil price was over $100 a barrel. Yes. And yet the petrol and diesel price was never this high. So whilst the crude oil price, when this article was written, which I think was yesterday... Yeah, it was yesterday, and the prices were taken over the weekend, so they're probably out of date already. Mm. But the the price was not at a hundred dollars a barrel. No. So why is it so expensive? I don't understand that. Apart from the let's say understandable leap to we are being gouged for money. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, I'm sure it's purely coincidence that, uh, of course, BP posted record profits for 2021, earnings of £9.5 billion or $12.5 billion last year. And Shell, uh, meanwhile, announced a momentous, in inverted commas, profit of around £12 billion uh, last year. So someone somewhere is, uh, is making a lot of money. Yes. Yes, they are. Some of the rest of us are definitely not. Yes. Well, it's not going to be long now. It really isn't going to be long now that even though we are below 2019 traveling uh, levels, Mm. that people seriously curtail their journeying. We did it after 2008, and Mm. that caused the petrol companies a lot of pain, and it's going to happen again. And seemingly, it feels this time, because I haven't looked into it enough, but it just feels this time that a lot of the problems are self-made. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yes, it's hard to argue with that. Of course, uh, if you think we're wrong, we're being overly naive, do get in touch and just let us know. Please do, yeah. yeah. We are we are being naive and silly about this. We don't think we are. Andrew, uh, another, another story from the totally inevitable box. <laughs> uh, yes, and this is the news that the government has introduced an EV charge point regulation, which is to try and help manage with increased demand as more people convert to plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles. This does also link in with other electric or electricity network uh, ideas and plans that there are out there. But what is happening with the EV chargers is that they must use a uh, smart system, inverted commas, mm-hmm. where that they prioritise the times when they're going to charge. So therefore, they, the idea is sort of a bit like a modern economy seven. So they'll yeah. they'll charge when there's less demand on the grid or when there's more uh, renewable energy available so that we don't up our usage of coal gas-fired power stations. I think that there's actually quite a lot of good in this. So the piece of legislation is called the Electric Vehicles, brackets, Smart Charge Points, close brackets, Regulations 2021. And it covers a couple of things. So it absolutely says that chargers and smart cables as well, which seem to be like a clever charging cable that stores data about you. Yeah, okay, I'm a bit squiffy on that one. (laughs) Uh, they've got to include preset off-peak hours that the owner should either accept, remove, change when you first get it, and I imagine you can change them again after that. There are also rules in there uh, for the electricity providers to say, for instance, the charger should retain all of its functionality if you change electricity provider. Mm. It should continue to charge, even if there's a loss of connection between the charger and your provider at the other end of the smartness which is a problem that public charging points have had we experienced it wasn't it that was usually our main problem when we did and i know that we're going back in history to when we were charging around britain but our our major problem was that the charging point couldn't speak back to the mothership and say yes someone wants to charge (laughs) yeah it was authentication was the main issue we had because just some places did had no cell coverage and the other one is that there should be a display showing owner oh, how much the vehicle is charged. I don't understand if that's a per charge or if that's like its own little electricity meter. Mm. So there's there's a bit of good, bit of bad in uh, a bit of questionable uh, in there uh, as well. There's also security issues to be addressed. So therefore, that would cover the likes of the charging points that use Raspberry Pi mm. as their operating systems. They would not be allowed because they do not meet the standards of the Internet of Things regulations for security standards. Well done. I always forget to say the word things and say something else. Instead, <laughs> just now. These regulations don't come into force until June the 30th, 2022 and apply to any persons or business selling, offering, or advertising a charge point for sale. It doesn't say new charge point for sale, so if you're ch- selling second-hand charge points, uh, you might have trouble from then on. Yeah. Yep, but that is, it's a, a sensible thing, and yeah, I, I think it will only help generally. I think so too. I think it's, I think it's generally a good thing, mm. to be honest. I don't really have an issue with the off-peak charging or any of that. Mm kind of stuff i'm sure there's ways to override it as long as you can override it because there yeah. will be times during the day that you need to charge your car for if you're at home hmm. so that that's fine but it it's if if the default is do it overnight when no one else is using the electricity type thing then that can only be a good thing yeah exactly talking of electricity yes electric trucks two things i like electric stuff and trucks win <laughs> tesco has decided it's going to start using battery-powered delivery lorries it's going to be the first UK supermarket to do so. Absolutely not the first European or global supermarket to do so. It's saying that it's the start of them learning how to do electric trucks. Makes a lot of sense in this kind of context where you're depot-based. Uh, you know, the trucks are all re- returning to the same place every night. They can be charged uh, when they're there. And they're starting out gently and then working their way up to it they've said that all of their home delivery vans will be fully electrified i'll let you decide whether that means electric or not by 2028 uh they've already started on that journey so this is them starting on the the truck fleet it's a big thing they have over 2000 hgv tractor units 
uh, that they'll need to to convert eventually. And of course, those run on five, six, seven, eight year cycles. So probably not as many as eight years. Uh, cycles that they'll need to be the, the, the churn from the next generation or two. They're going to start running two lorries from South Wales, and they are DAF CFs, if anybody cares. I like the, the way that they're approaching this because they're going from one of their depots in Cardiff to a distribution point near Newport, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not too far, but the mileage you can get with the vehicles they've got anyway is is something like 100 and something miles anyway but that is pulling 37 tons that's not yeah. too bad considering how much weight mm-hmm. they are shifting and we are we are still this i think something sometimes we forget this so do regulators or those who make decisions for us that we mm-hmm. are very early into this transformation yeah. to particularly for commercial vehicles because they have different needs yes absolutely if you're wondering why it's not higher by the way and it's only 37 bit tons gross vehicle weight then it's because they're only four by two tractor units so they've only got two axles on the tractor unit we should continue our truck nerdgasm some other time <laughs> no but I, I like the way that they are approaching this in a small yet methodical manner because there will be quirks and eccentricities to using electric only that they will just not not have thought of and other people won't have encountered because they don't have tesco's requirements this is a railhead type distribution unit, so this is a, it looks like these will mostly be using be hauling containers rather than refrigerated units and stuff as you normally see on the motorways and things. Yeah, so really, really good use case for electricity as opposed to any other alternative fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, so it's almost last mile, but with <laughs> with lorries because it's eighteen miles that they're travelling. I know what you mean. Yeah, no, but I know what you mean. Thank you. That's all right. <laughs> Tell us about Lotus then. Yeah, I'm going to take us to Lotus. And they have a new division, which is to create bespoke models, the Lotus Advanced Performance Division, which is going to be led by the ex-Aston Martin Cubos. That is Simon Lane. Basically being given a blank sheet of paper to make, and I'm quoting here, the most exciting and exclusive Lotus cars, where they will be embracing our exciting electrified future while honouring our illustrious past. They're basically going to be making the mad stuff. Yeah, mad stuff, or if you want particular colour scheme, I guess. Very very bespoke, special, hmm. luxury, not luxury, but it is, you're, t- you're talking in that sort of super luxury range, where, like you do with Rolls-Royce, where I want yes. this very specific type thing, please. Yes, it, it's a luxury good as opposed to necessarily a luxury car. Yes, yeah. yeah. It, it's that kind of market where really you can just come along with a blank checkbook and say, look, I just want. This thing that nobody else has, and I want it based on your stuff, please. Yep. They're not stating what their first project is going to be yet, but uh, I did notice that uh, social media was very complimentary to uh, to Simon Lane and sent him a lot of congratulations. Sounds like he's the right person for mm-hmm. this role for Lotus at this time. Yes. Hopefully, this is a great, great tie-in between the two. Yeah. Same here. Should be good. Do you want to take us to Volvo? Volvo is, I think there's a, you know, there's a second phase on, you know how we say we always have the joke about the car company to go all electric by insert date here. Yes. The next stage on from that is car company to invest X amount of million pounds (laughs) in converting factory to electric. Uh, And this week it's the turn of Volvo who will be investing 800 million pounds upgrading its largest factory at Torslanda in Sweden to become an all-electric vehicle production assembly plant, to have its own battery assembly plant as well, uh, and also to introduce a whole load of new stuff to make funky aluminium mega casting to use in cars. Yes. You've got to say it like that, haven't you? Mm-hmm. But it's also tied in with not only with them being uh, shifting to EV, but with their zero uh, footprint, zero carbon footprint. Mm. So they are amending things like the paint shop, so that the the um, that is also zero carbon, and then what they what the paints they use, how they do it, all that mm. sort of stuff, it, it is minimizing the effect on the environment from from the yeah. whole point of view. We know through the special edition recently that they are looking to install materials in the cars which are which are zero carbon 
uh, and can mm. be easily recycled and that sort of stuff. So it's all tying together now, and they, they're, they're acknowledging that they need to make adjustments on their historical internal combustion engine plant. But you mentioned paint plants. So that's notoriously the most difficult part of any car factory to sort of sort out. The it is for one American stuff. electric company. Very hard um, for them to fix yes, that. Yes, I, I actually wasn't mentioning that bit, but yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was just letting that hang. Um, but no, it is traditionally it is traditionally is anyway yeah, for yeah, any yeah. any car plant anywhere in the world. Let's that's not poke the finger too much. I mean, we're no, not no, a Polestar is, advert, yeah. are we? No, it's you're absolutely right. It is uh, on the mega casting though. I'm curious. One, I know Tesla are doing it. Yeah, is anyone else doing it at the minute? And if not, why not? Because the one reason to not do it, because the, the whole point is that they are taking a portion of the car that normally has many parts put together on it to create, for example, in this in the autocar article, which is linked in the show notes, they're talking about the rear floor plan. Yeah, it, it's normally made of many, many stamped pieces of steel sort of assembled and, and welded together. Yeah. And... Why I'm I'm curious why this hasn't been done before, but well, the one main concern I have with this, particularly as it's aluminium as well, is if there's an accident, uh-huh. is that like more likely for a write-off? Do you know that was exactly what crossed my mind when I read this as well? Because aluminium, you can't stretch it, you can't unbend it in the way that ste- you can with steel. Mm. So if it was a big Chunk, big piece of breast steel and stuff. In theory, you can put the car in a big jig, go, and because of the way a steel behaves under load, then it will go back to where it was, or so near as you just don't know. Aluminium doesn't behave that way. When you're repairing aluminium cars, you have to sort of basically cut stuff off and stick it back on again. Or that's why often aluminium parts unbolt and then you just replace the whole subpart. I think whenever it's something like that, the rear floor then that, to me, is a bit worrying because if anything damages that at all, that, to me, sounds like it would be a write-off. Or is it like with, you see with, um, particularly uh, endurance motor racing, that they just take the part off and stick a new part on and that makes it actually easier to repair? Possibly. It all depends on how it's been designed in. It could be worse. It could be better. Either way, that's not necessarily down to the fact that it's the casting process. That's down to the way that it's designed to meet in with the rest of the vehicle. Mm. If it can be just removed like a subframe and then replaced again, sorted. Then you're you're purely talking time to take off fit and the the part itself. Something like that, yes, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And as it's aluminium, then it doesn't, you know, it it depends how visible it is, all sorts of stuff like that. And how easy is it to recycle aluminium? Do you sort of just melt it all back down and then you reform it into a thing? Aluminium is very, one of the first metals really that that was recycled on a commercial scale, of course. Uh, it's very, very easy with aluminium. Much lower melting point than steel as well. So, so much easier. And you don't have the same issues with the carbon amounts that you get with steel. And also, it's obviously lighter, so therefore you don't need as many batteries. You know, I can see a lot of yeah, Well, that's not necessarily true because it's lighter, but it's not as strong. So you oh, may okay. need more aluminium yeah. where you would need less steel. So uh, swings and roundabouts. Oh, okay. Depends. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Maybe one to try and follow up with Volvo on that one, actually, because yeah. they, they won't have done this for the sake of it. No. No, exactly. Someone will they're, have they're not- if we thought of these problems, then... I'm sure I, that they have. I, I hope someone of Volvo has thought of these problems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for a second there, we might almost have sounded informed. <laughs> to non-long-term listeners. <laughs> yes, find a rare chance for me to use some some mechanical engineering background there. <laughs> anyway, do we want to go a little bit further south in Sweden? Okay. To Ongelholm. I'm going to take us to Koningsegg. Uh, and the news that they're going to extend their factory, so Alan has something else to look at when he goes and parks up outside their shut gates next time he visits. It was open. The gates were open. (laughs) Um, But they are going to expand their factory footprint, mainly for the production of their plug-in hybrid. Oh, I didn't practice this. Is this Gamera? It's Gamera, I believe. Gamera. Uh, Their Hyper GT, a four-seat 
I think it is, four-seat Hyper GT. It is, yes. So that is going to be mainly for the production of that, but also they're going to have areas for other parts of the business, things like they're going to have uh, dedicated spaces for the customers. I presume it's going to be really nice, lovely lounges and everything where they can see their car being built and stuff like that, um, and that sort of stuff that happens. But this is, I mean, this is off the back of them... Uh, announcing another 10,000 square meter facility that they've just opened a year ago mm-hmm. within the last year. So it it's great to see that Koenigsegg are going from strength to strength because you, you always worry about these mega hyper things that you, you see the, a lot of them in the in the press and everything because it makes a sexy photo and it's easy to get the likes and it's easy to get magazines and TV interested in them. But does that actually relate to sales or you know, being a viable company. You've got to remember with Koenigsegg, it's a couple of things. Uh, a, it's a viable company. Uh, B, it's about being a viable engineering company as well. So lots of the stuff they've done is sort of transferable to other non-super hyper ultra cars too. And, and I, you know, and, and the fact that they, they even make their, they even design their own CPUs and stuff in a way that they can then sell that, that IP to others and just generally being very very good at the engineering around everything rather than just some bolt some folk sticking stuff together in a shed <laughs> um which so well that's what so often happens with these hypercars everybody just runs out of money mm. but koenigsegg have been much they've been around really quite a while now and they've been far more careful about just how they go about stuff remember a few years ago there was that excellent inside koenigsegg series from the drive when Mm -hmm. it was still a when it was still primarily a video channel that was fantastic that was really good give a real insight into how it all worked also did few years a couple of years before back before they were a big name and they were still in a corner of uh the geneva motor show quiet point in the sun saturday afternoon happened to wander over and was chatting to the the British sales guy that was on the that was on the stand uh, because there was nobody else about. I didn't feel I was imposing on anyone. And uh, he gave the full talk around. Uh, I've forgotten which which model it was now, but the full talk around the model and all the engineering and all the background stuff and showed us all the stuff. Uh, that gave me a real appreciation for uh, for Koenigsegg and how they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got a lot of time for that company and how they do things. Mm. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, really good company, just generally. More unsurprising news. Yes. Uh, We are unsurprised now that rush hour traffic jams have fallen in 2021 compared to 2019. Um, They have fallen by 35% on average across the country. Some towns are significantly higher than that. For example, Reading was down 53% which must have made travelling those roads quite nice. Southampton No, 52. it was still Reading, mate. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> no, but I mean as in a, a, a amount of traffic, because Southampton was down yes. 52%, which would just be a godsend. <laughs> and Coventry yeah. 45%, because that's not a laugh either. No. Great thing about places like Reading and stuff, where so much of it is, is stuff that could be done from home. There's lots of... Mm tech there's lots of information-based stuff southampton similarly to be perfectly honest i know we, we think of southampton about ships and all that kind of thing but again very along that m27 i've got that right haven't i m27 corridor mm. uh along the, the the south coast there it can be awful now there is another part there might be another part of southampton by the way is that they've been doing an awful lot of work along there and a lot of roadworks which have now been removed and I believe that that's now ended mm-hmm. that work on the M27. So that was a significant contributory factor as well. But again, large business parks, out of town, sort of big offices for banks and insurance companies. Again, which mostly can be done from home. Yep, a bit like a, like Reading as well. I can't speak for Stoke on Trent and Cardiff uh, as much, but definitely Reading and Southampton. Then I can can absolutely see why that would be the case. Just people don't need to be in the office. Yep. But the fear uh, or warning is that this is going to change because the uh, in the art, this Yes Auto article that's linked again in the show notes, it's talked about because the study was developed by TomTom and their mm-hmm. traffic expert, Andy Marchant, said that um, there is due to be the government's published plan of how to live with COVID 
as a country, which is expected to say things like go back to the office, etc., which means the traffic will undoubtedly go up unless you've got companies that realise, A, their productivity goes up, B, people don't want to go in, because I bet the bosses don't mm. want to be in the office all the time either, and there's now going to be sort of this sort of hybrid-y, sometimes in work, sometimes not, uh, trying to trying to fit what the company needs, but also try and keep employees happy. Oh, I don't want to go too far off the car stuff, but it's entirely down to the to the company and the company's general attitude. Yeah, if, you can see that are, in some of the If people need to be back at work, they will already uh, need to be working from an office. They will already be working from an office, even as we, as we record this. Mm. Probably some form of hybrid working. Uh, everything's in place now for people, for many people for whom it's possible to work from home to, to work from home technology wise and stuff if after two years you're still not at that stage then sack your it provider but generally yeah i, I don't anticipate i imagine most places from my understanding experience most places will be moving to a hybrid setup of like three days in the office or three days a week in the office and stuff. yeah but the 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 problem is that the government is seriously pushing that we do active travel and we all know the problems yes. with that. Uh, and uh, again, as Marchant says in here, that the cycling, public transport, and other modes of transport must take a larger share in transportation. A lot of transports there. That's but great. He if says, you can do it. Yes, he says as well. Just, uh, just hold that for one second, though. But he says mm. such a redirection requires greater collaboration between U- UK city planners, policymakers, employers, and drivers, and all it, it and it takes time. We don't have mm-hmm. time. We are being given seven and a bit years now. Yeah. In town planning, say, so that's a blink of an eye. Yes. It really it really because is. Because there's stuff being approved now or in the last 18 months, which will have done nothing to help any of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Absolutely. I mean, we'll come on to another article shortly that ties in with that. But as you, as you say, though, uh, Alan, we've, we've got to have the, the, the desire to do it as well. Uh, and the ability and it is not active travel for work is not for many people and it is no. not the the infrastructure is not there for most of us either it comes down as, as simple as right when i get there when i get to work all sweaty from being active can i then make my is are there the facilities for me to make myself presentable for mm. the rest of my work day and then get changed again at the end of the day to go home yeah I'm soaking wet because it chucked it down as I cycled in. I need to not be soaking wet, thank you very much. Yes. Can I sort uh, that out? And and that's definitely, you know, and, and yeah. Yeah, but what do we know? We're only people who actually go and do these things. <laughs> right. <sighs> Take us on, though. <laughs> yes. Well, very, very tightly linked is an article from the BBC. Uh, and it's by the BBC Environment Analyst. I thought we'd ban stories by the BBC Environment Analysts. They, they tend to be, and I agree. And I agree with this one. Well, this is this is again on the lines of we are unsurprised at all with any of the findings. Essentially, greenfield new home development here in the UK is designed around the car. Of course, it's designed around the car. It's because they never bother putting any other ruddy infrastructure into the greenfield new housing development. No. Okay, it's that simple. When they can't be bothered building shops then this is what has to happen so that people can get to and from these places. Yep. Um, you know, they don't design for buses, they don't design for shops, they don't design for anything else. So it has to be the car. And because they tend to be out in sticks, then uh, it's not necessarily practicable to to actually be able to cycle to the supermarket once a week and any of these things. No. So that's what happens when greedy house builders are lazy. All they have to do is just tick the box of, yes, look, we've put um, a cycle lane in. Oh, yes, we just acknowledge that the bus service will turn up because we've put this thousand home thing on a greenfield site, etc. without having to prove that they have tied in with bus companies and said, oh, yeah. yes, we will give you X amount of pounds to help incentivize you to put a bus service in here or any of that. They don't have to do any of that stuff. So it's just no. farcical. It is. It, ab- it absolutely is. You, you, you've seen the shared space that I've got around here. It's, it's, it means there's no room for anything. Yeah. yeah. Shared space for more houses. 
actually is what it is yeah so so yeah i mean it's it's pretty it's it's yes it's, and it's until there is a fundamental change in the attitude from the top down on all aspects of our lives none it's all piecemeal and it's not going to make any difference it's just it, what we'll do is we'll annoy sectors of the population at different times because they're being inconvenienced because there's no mm. tie-in and there's no general plan and there's no discussion with us to say this is what we're trying to achieve as a country all together. So it means all these aspects yeah. are going to be affected. But I think that's the end of the first part, Alan. So, <laughs> Yes. So I'm going to move on with a hop and a skip and a spring in my step. Lightness in your heart. Exactly. To Gilp Minute, the quick break in the show where we ask for a tad of financial support to get the lights on the hosting running. If you feel the motoring podcast worth a small consideration every month, then you can become a patron. Different levels of patron include different levels of commitment from us to you, including being able to watch the show recorded live. We also have a small range and growing range of merchandise available from our website and spring store from stickers to mugs and t-shirts. He says, brandishing the mug in the direction of the microphone, the hope that you can hear the wonderful new merch. If, however, you don't have any spare cash, and we totally understand and get it, then you can help us by following for free from a podcast player to receive every show as they're released, and by liking and rating the show in whatever way your podcast supplier lets you. If you've done all of that, uh, or even just any of that, then thank you so very much. Uh, but don't forget that the one last thing you can do is to recommend us to your friends or colleagues. Yes. Thank you, everyone who does. We do appreciate it greatly. Yes, my I spent my afternoon working, ah, uh, and then went to my phone, picked it up, went to Twitter, and there were many, many, many notifications from people who were answering a question uh, posed by someone uh, and mentioning us and the podcast. Thank you so very much. Yes. Do you want to take us to Alfa Romeo now? New, new car news. Alfa Romeo. No, oh, doing your best, Matteo. <laughs> Matteo Licata. <laughs> I can't, I'm not even going to do it. Yes. The Alfa Romeo Tonali uh, has been revealed. It was delayed. It was, well, it was shown at Geneva a couple of years ago, and then mm -hmm. it was delayed by the new Alfa Romeo CEO, Jean-Philippe Imparto, because he said it just wasn't good enough, uh, wow. quite frankly. Yes. Well, it's a brave move. That's quite, that's quite a move. You know, your first, almost like your first week in the job type thing. Sorry, lads. Yes. The effort you've put in. No. <laughs> but the thing is that it would also be the first car launched under his premiership. And if it came out and it was like, well, this isn't very good, is it? Mm -hmm. It would reflect directly on him. Mm -hmm. So according to this Evo article, insisted that improvements were made before it went out to market. It is a size-wise, it is aimed uh, directly at the Audi Q3, the BMW X1 be available with three hybrid powertrains, two mad hybrids, and a plug-in hybrid as well. Uh, most of those, the everything but the plug-in, is mated to a 1.5-litre four-cylinder petrol engine. You'll get either 128 brake or 157 brake. The plug-in is based on the 1.3-litre multi-air four-cylinder, and it will give out uh, 273 uh, break in total, uh, as well as an electric-only range of about forty miles. That's mm, that's not going to meet the new rules, is it? Uh, new rules are, I think, around it. sixty miles. Mm. They so are. They yes. oh, they're going to miss out on business. Well, it's alpha, isn't it? Well, lots of stuff's going to miss out on business right at the minute. Mm. Lots and lots. That's, I mean, a, that's about, a shame for them because we'll it would be a shoe in, then, wouldn't minute. it? For particularly for company car driver type things, you would you would hope so. Uh, by the way, there will also be a one hundred and twenty eight brake, one point six liter diesel available, uh, and a two hundred and ninety seven brake turbocharged two liter petrol combustion only models, but they'll be for overseas markets, specifically North America, for the two liter liter petrol. Everybody's saying, well, what is it with uh, with Alfa Romeo? Is this a new launch for new Alfa Romeo? Um, which is all a little bit worrying, given that that's what the Giulia and the Stelvio were meant to be. Also delayed vehicles. Mm. Uh, it's worth mentioning. Uh, both good vehicles. We, we both, we're fans of them, yep. big time. Yep. And I really love the look of the Tonali. I think it. I think it looks cracking. It's it is 
a refreshingly clean design. Mm. And they've brought back the three lights. They have, which I really, really like. Yes. Um, I do. I really like the three lights. And that blue looks amazing on it. It's kind of hard to tell. I find that the Italian companies over-touch up the, the press photos. So whilst I think it looks good, I'm not really reserving judgment on sort of body styling and, and surfacing and stuff. Because remember what happened with the uh, the uh, Maserati... I've now forgotten its name. That's how much of a... Lavorg? No, not Lavorg. That's a Subaru. You know the one I mean, the Maserati Levante. Levante. That's the one. I get there eventually. It's been a long, long day. So yeah, which looks so much better in the flesh than it ever did in the press photos. Mm-hmm. Interior here looks lovely as well. I I have high hopes for this. I love the idea of it. I like the looks of it. I'd have it over any of the German rivals. Oh, yeah, yeah probably. absolutely. Just really, no, I, no, no mention of prices yet he says scrolling back through to make sure no mention of prices yet uh no mention of firm dates yet but we'll let you know as soon as we do i did find prices somewhere did you and it was going to start out a bit more expensive than the base model q3 that's not the end of the earth because i'm sure you'll get a bit more kit as yes well. i mean that that interior looks exactly like what we've experienced which is lovely no, it looks better. It actually looks better. The, the picture of the interior here, it looks more upmarket than the bigger alphas. I'd have one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I think it's going to have to drive pretty poorly, which I can't believe it will. To The challenge is going to be that it's not going to be a fleet car ever. It's really going to be private buyers because it's just not going to get on fleets because it's an Alfa Romeo. But then again, the part of Stellantis now. Am I being overly harsh? Probably. It would be interesting to see the um, the reliability index for Alpha recently, since you know, since the Julia and and all that. Because in the, in the, yeah. I have, are they like? I mean, because they're definitely not like Alpha of old, of old old. In the US, some of the early press cars were really bad, oh. like the quad of the um, Quadrifoglios, and I think that that really hurt them in the US, mm. but. I've no, but I've not really heard any of the same here. In, certainly here in the UK, I've I've not really heard too many complaints. I know that the Stelvio diesel I had was flawless over seven hundred and something miles of of tough going in every direction, from <laughs> mud on the roof to stuck on the embankment in London. Uh, it did a cracking job. It's one of my favourite press cars I've ever had. Mm. Um, I didn't put a foot wrong mm. either. Yeah, even when you did. It yes. still didn't put a foot wrong. It was it was fine. Right, I'm going to take us to the Vauxhall Astra. This is a slight mm-hmm. slight departure, uh, yes. and this is the first Stellantis underpinnings Astra, and this is due out in 2022. Now, this is based heavily on the underside bits of the Peugeot 308, which is not necessarily a bad thing because that is it, quite an attractive. Little hat or family-sized hatchback, not little. I've not driven the current generation, but it got very good write-ups. Yep. Now, because it is based on that, it is slightly lower, slightly wider, slightly longer. Mm-hmm. However, it appears the interior space is not quite as much as the previous model under the GM platform. Mm-hmm. But the interior is a big step upwards. Yes. Now, what I would say is with, and I do feel this with Vauxhall, is they get their nose and then you can see where the car comes from. It's not quite badge engineering, but it's not too far off it, which I'm really... What, with an Opal? With this, I'm a bit disappointed because the front end looks great on this. The the, the new Vauxhall face, mm. I think, looks really, really nice. Is yeah, really good, distinctive, and it's clean and all the rest of it. Citroen can look different. Mm-hmm. Peugeot has got its own unique style. And then Vauxhall is a case of, well, put your nose on and that's it. And then you have the rest of the body. Because if you look at the side the, panel, yeah. when you get to the rear um, the rear pillar, that rear window is almost identical apart from they've cut an extra slight little um, swoosh out the back of it. From, from the Peugeot. From the Peugeot. 
Yeah. I think it looks a bit like a Signum, to be honest. Yes. And I don't actually think that's a bad thing, because no. I quite like the looks of the Signum. The Signum was actually quite a clever car. It, it was a very clever car. It was its biggest, too its clever. biggest issue. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was a little bit too clever, and a Vauxhall badge. That was, Those were the problems with the Sigma. Yeah. But the but, but it's that kind of, I don't know, I bet you if you put it, it would be almost be sizes with it. But it, it's that kind of, it's it's that lower, wider, um, sort of longer, longer overhangs type type look that that's going on yep it's going to be a little bit more costly than the outgoing or not a little bit it is more costly than the outgoing but again you are getting a more a more polished product i think is the way to put so i wasn't going to say premium i don't think that's right no but a more polished product plus you've also got uh, the stellantis engines which are good you're going to have a a choice of a couple of plug-in hybrids and then if you wait till 2023 you can get a fully electric version um will this push it out of typical astra that with the price increase of what people want to do particularly the plug-in hybrid i don't know that's four grand premium yeah you know what a, 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 a while ago i was asked by someone what do you think is the problem with voxel what do you think voxel could do and my suggestion was that the biggest problem with voxel is that everybody is is the names of the models and I really feel that this is such a big difference. It's a real shame that they've kept the Astra name. I feel that with this new generation of stuff, and I think that that's what ties it down, by the way, that's that's why it doesn't feel right, is that they have stuck with the same names for so long. In some cases, those names used on really quite poor vehicles, mm. that it really is time to get new model names. Well, there's no way someone is going to walk into a Vauxhall dealership with that new one there and not expect a massive price discount. Yeah, I agree. Which I don't think they're going to be able to get because I, I would imagine Stellantis will be going, nope, we don't do that anymore. That's, and that's because it's an Astra and you've yep. always been able to buy an Astra like that. Mm-hmm. It needs to be a something else. Yeah, I, I can't stress this enough. It, it, it should be a something else. It's... The name is used up. It's had a great innings, great run. There's there's too much there's too much baggage now. Yeah, and and, and that's the problem. There's been too much mediocre in between. Yeah, I hope it's successful. I obviously oh, hope me it's too. successful. I I think it looks great. I think they're built in the UK. Obvious, uh, Astra built in the UK. Estate, Ast- estates built in the UK. Sorry, touring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, wagon. Yeah, so I hope it does well. Mm-hmm. I really do. One last new new car news, and we're only telling you because you probably won't be able to tell the difference. (laughs) There is a new Audi A8 out, priced from £70,000. It looks like the old A8. You'll probably spend your time working out, trying to work out if it's an A6 or an A8. If you want to tell the difference, then it's because the new one has new headlamps. They are multi... I've lost it now. Drat. Yes. They are something fancy to do with LEDs. There we go. They're digital matrix LED headlamps. There we go. That's how you tell the difference. How you tell the difference between it and the previous generation and it and the the, the, the smaller models, I just don't know. At the launch, I saw more pictures of the classic first generation audi a8 which was on display than i did of the new one that gives you an idea of how exciting it is imagine an audi a8 that's it their end death our coverage yep absolutely <laughs> right i'm going to take us to the lunchtime read and this is from the register and alistair dabs has quite a a good poke at assisted driving stroke autonomous and automated driving technologies um, well worth your <laughs> your time to read this because he does actually get to one of the points I feel is quite uh, valid and a, ultimately will be one of the stages that we end up if we're going to have, particularly if we're going to have fully autonomous vehicles on the road. Uh, it is 
a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but there is some real truth behind this all as well. So do go and enjoy that article because he he does like to put the boot in a bit. It, it involves a link to a Death Race 2000 trailer. <laughs> <laughs> so for that alone... For that alone, there you go. Do, do click through, uh, click through the link in the show notes. This week's list of the week is uh, in Top Gear. It's by a friend of the show, Sam Burnett, and it's "Do you know the histories of these twelve car badges?" And there are twelve of them. Mm-hmm. Andrew, do you want to pick one? Well, I'd, I'd like to say actually. A lot of the photographs here are actually stunning. There's some that are quite dull, but some of the Mm. photographs are absolutely lovely. And I will pick number four, Skoda. Yes, that's a good one, actually, because I don't, I couldn't I didn't know that. And I expect you know the stories to, I'm going to guess, at least nine of these. Me? I know know it from many of them, yes. Yes, that's, that's probably, nine is probably a fair. A, a, a fair guess to be honest yeah yep so it's a really good one it's it's a re- it's a really good it's a good list and mm. you'll learn something as well yes as, it's your educational <laughs> article of the week <laughs> yes we've done a lot of educating this week a fair bit of grumbling but a lot of educating as well mm. andrew that means that you have the and finally this week yes the and finally is the story of a radio station in america an NPR station, KUOW on 94.9 of Seattle. Uh, Is that your best DJ impression? <laughs> yes, 94.9 FM. Via their, which I didn't know this technology existed, but via their radio stream HD. Hmm. They had also inserted, so I presume this is uh, a a bit similar to our recent show where we inserted extra bits of media in our, in our um, audio file. Yes, this is, this is a particularly American sort of digital radio format, which we don't really have here. Yeah. Well, they, the the radio station itself inserted some pictures along with the audio that came out. Unfortunately, they forgot to say that they were .jpegs. There was no file extensions. No, that's fine, because normally the thing won't recognize it, so just ignores it. However, Mm. if you owned a Mazda that was built between 2013 and 2017, 2014 and 2017, you had a little bit of an issue with this because your infotainment system fell over it fell over to such an extent that the screen went blank but you were jammed on 94.9 fm (laughs) which is really really funny until you realize that the new connectivity master unit which had just been fried costs fifteen hundred dollars if you can get one yes at the minute if you can get one so yeah not awesome really it also what this highlights. Well, sorry. Let's let me just finish off by saying Mazda mm. warranty has said that they will give a free repair to any vehicles affected by this uh, by this mistake. Uh, the NPR station and the company that helped put out the information via the technology could not be reached. But I presume some junior has been beaten to death <laughs> for allowing this to happen. However, they've got fantastic. Um, <laughs> press coverage now people really know about that station but master has said that they will replace this for free but it does go to show what a house of cards built on a pile of shifting sand car infotainment system software is well yes but come on we find the same with podcast software ourselves you know we we put out we we spent many hours researching and finally crafting the multimedia extravaganza that was the the Tokyo Auto Salon Special Edition, uh, only to find that on many podcast players, it made no difference whatsoever. Well, it's it's worse than that at the moment for RS. Um, if you are on Apple Podcasts, you do not get our full show notes even in the episode. And I cannot establish why that is. Hmm. There is some interface issue between Apple Podcasts and how we publish them, 
that I cannot get around. And and it can't be the RSS because it appears in or others. If you go somewhere else, you can still get you get all that. But Apple Podcasts themselves cuts off the show notes after a certain point. But you can always get the show notes by going to motoringpodcast.com and uh, and then the new show. Absolutely. And we get a bonus click as well. <laughs> Occasional click is quite nice. Anyway, we are wandering way off topic. Do we have any parish notes this week? Uh, first one, I'd like to say thank you to Richard for stepping in at incredibly short notice. I know yes, you thanked thank him you. at the time and I have thanked him on Twitter, but thank you, Richard, for stepping in. And apologies for... Dear listeners, for leaving you all on your own with Alan last week, and sorry to Alan to leave you all on your own. <laughs> That's okay. I just didn't have time to, to arrange to arrange anyone else and to do the arrangement that goes around arranging someone else as well. Yeah, uh, more to the point. What else? Toyota Parallel Pomeroy's this weekend and Sunday at uh, Silverson. If you're going to be there, then I'll be there. So uh, do come over and say hi. What are you there with, Alan? Surprising. Uh, everything. So, so, uh, so uh, is, I'm, is, I'm there with the is, trim. Is a lot of your fleet going to be there? Two, two-thirds of my current of what's on my driveway are going to be there, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, that's two-thirds in uh, that's two-thirds in number of vehicles, not in overall length. No. That's about half. Yeah, just that, yeah. It's great. There's loads of room for three cars in my driving. Two of them are tiny. They're going to be there. And yeah. Fingers crossed the weather is better than last year. Uh, yeah. I, I, by the way, I, I'm still on winter tires at the minute because I keep looking at the weather forecast and going, I can't. A, I can't be bothered changing them. And B, this might actually be to my advantage. <laughs> How many people are going to turn up with snow tires on? So, yeah. So that's coming up this weekend. Uh, that's about it for the parish notes. That was almost a podcast in itself. Covered everything? I think so. Awesome. Then, everyone, don't forget, between now and next week, you can give us any feedback, share your thoughts with the show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, or on Facebook and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Uh, remember, you can support us financially via Patreon. Please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, or however our podcast app lets you do such a thing. Andrew. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter. If you search for Crack Windscreen, you should find me there. And Alan, if people would like to know more about what it means to have different axle numbers on a tractor unit, what's the best way for them to do that personally? The best way to do that personally, as if you do it any other way, any other way, is via Twitter, where I'm at AJP Bradley. That's B-I-A-D-L-E-Y. Uh, we'll be back very soon. But until then, I've been Alan Bradley. I've been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring. <laughs>